and welcome to Gone Medieval. I'm Dr Kat Jarman. This week I'm out and about in Northamptonshire. I'm actually out on an archaeological project with my collaborator, Professor Mark Horton. Hello and welcome back, Mark. Hi Kat, it's great to be here. So last time I dragged you on the podcast to talk about something far more exotic, which was the Indian Ocean and medieval trade. But now we're a bit closer to home and... We've just driven past the church and you've been talking about this for a long time. So you dragged me along to talk about it. So we're in a little place called Bricksworth and we're just outside a stunning church here. And we're going to be talking about this church, an Anglo-Saxon church, and about the kingdom of Mercia. So tell me exactly why have you brought me here, apart from the fact that it's stunning. Well, it's one of the best preserved and certainly the largest surviving Anglo-Saxon churches in England are still in use today and built in the 8th century. And it is the most spectacular survival and gives you an idea of what these great Anglo-Saxon churches might have looked like. So the one thing that strikes you as soon as you look at this, you look up at it and it's huge, but it's also made out of mainly out of stone, but then it has an awful lot of red tiles or bricks in it as well. What's so special about those? Let's go and have a look at them. Uh, You can see that they are really thick and of standard dimensions. This Anglo-Saxon church, the knowledge of making bricks and firing bricks like this had been lost by this point. So these must come from an earlier source and they're actually Roman, Roman Tigili. And they must have been taken from nearby Roman buildings and brought here to Bricksworth um, to be handy building materials to create this basic wonderful voussoirs. You can see this arch and how they've been set at an angle and then been placed along the top there. So they're handy building materials but possibly more than that that it was a deliberate appropriation of Roman building to convert to an Anglo-Saxon building to say, here, we, we can still build again. Right, so let's have a little wander around it here. Where are we going now, Mark? Well, they built this spectacular bell tower. It's a sort of stair that goes all the way up. And if you stand back, you can see, although it's slightly oval in shape, from this side it looks circular, and I've... I've always thought just how similar it looks to to Irish round towers, for example, that are being put up at exactly the same date. It is an odd one, isn't it? Because it just sort of sticks out as a very round tower. It's not the sort of thing you would expect in a church like this. No. Do we have many other examples of that in England? No, no. It's pretty well unique. Completely unique. That's Um, amazing. And again, a statement, a circular tower like this from this date. But there's one other feature on the outside before we go inside, which (laughs) is incredible. So we're now walking from the west end through to the east end. And these these spaces here would have had little projecting chapels known as porticus. Um, Okay, so we're we're looking at sort of several arches. We're looking at several sort of arches here just on the outside that look currently are just windows. But that's not what they were originally? No, no, they would have been open arches and if we did an excavation here we would find the remains of a square chapel that would have had an altar and possibly a burial place for a saint or a king or you know just an altar maybe um, there were eight in total four on both sides and you can see the very careful use of the roman tiles um, yeah so the roman tiles just sort of they're stacked up beautifully all the way in, along 
around these arches. Oh, and you can see some earlier faces here. I can see a little, I can spot a bit of detective work here. There's an earlier arch that's been a doorway or something. Smaller chapel here at this east end. And then ducking past the heating system, <laughs> here at the east end, we've got another really interesting feature. So if we peer down there, Okay, so we're now coming to the other side of the church and we're looking over a little wall and there's some steps going down just to sort of what looks like the outside of it. Yes, and there you can see the original Roman tiles. So you would have entered this from inside the church originally down into this, which is known as ambulatory crypt. So you would walk right round the outside of the East End. And this is the original Saxon fabric in here. That survives with this pilaster, which, remember at Repton, we have the same side pilasters there. And only this little bit survives. So what we're looking at is a polygonal apse, uh, which has side pilasters, which are very characteristic of the Saxon period. And we've got a little fragment of it running on here. And then there's another great Saxon window that survived at that point. And of course, another Saxon window there again with all those uh, tile dressings. But if we just go one little bit round, it gets kind of disappointing. <laughs> Look! <laughs> so the vicar in 1850 dug all this out in an antiquarian way. He found the foundations of the ambulatory crypt around the outside. But of course, the medievals had built a square east end here and he knocked all that down. So this is Victorian 1845 and not Saxon at all, but ah. is a replica of what he thought was there. <laughs> I see. So, okay, so that's, that's, I mean, one, that's one of the spectacular things that you see straight away. But actually, this being a Saxon church, there's something very unusual about it, and that is the size. Because we have a few Saxon churches around the country, not that many, but they're not like this, are they? No, you know, the famous ones like Deerhurst are tiny in comparison to this. I mean, this is actually the largest upstanding Saxon church in Britain and one of the most impressive because it's so complete and really of a very short period of time as well. Well, let's go inside and have a look and then you can tell me about it. And then I want to understand why it's here, why it's so big and what that actually means for our understanding of Anglo-Saxon Mercia. In we go. There's going to be a wow moment. Okay. <laughs> Our listeners won't be able to get the wow moment, though, will they? Because it's breathtaking as we go inside. Oh, wow, yes. <laughs> You're right. And you can see that, you know, when you go inside a building like this, just how cavernous and enormous it is. And, of course, it was much bigger than this because all these side arches are all opening, would have been opening to what are basically chapels or in Anglo-Saxon architectural terms, those porticus. And these would have had side altars, possibly relics of saints, and each one would have been a separate chapel. So you can imagine that the width of this is really twice, three times what just survives here in the nave. And what do we know? So we've been talking about this as a Saxon church, but what do we actually know about the date of it? Do we know when it was first built? Okay, so as you arrive into Brixworth, it 
proudly describe Saxon Church 680. Actually, that's completely wrong. <laughs> I noticed that. <laughs> There's been an archaeological project here for 25 years, and that concluded that there's two phases to this church. The first is in the late 8th century, 780-ish, and then the other phase is in the early 9th century, maybe 800, 810, something like that. The two phases are very, very close together, uh, but it represents significant change. If you look up, for example, above us, you can see this archway, Okay. And then this magnificent three-opening window from the Anglo-Saxon belfry. And you can see one cuts the other. Yeah, so it's quite clear. There's a sort of, there's an archway that's just literally cut through by a later window. That's that later face from the 9th century. From the it? early 9th century, but only 30 years apart, probably. And it's actually remarkably well-preserved, isn't it? Yes. Well, it's slightly enhanced by Vicar in the 1850s, who decided to restore it back to its Saxon glory. He was an antiquarian, and he was very keen to remove all the medieval, high medieval materials, and put it back to what he believed to be a pure Saxon church. Ah, so do we know if that's actually real? I mean, what was he basing that on? Well, his own knowledge, but very little, actually. But he didn't do a bad job, let's put it that way. For example, these have originally medieval windows in, and he replaced them with what he thought were Saxon windows. But perhaps his most controversial thing was to knock down the whole of the east end of the church, which was a square medieval east end, and replace it with a polygonal apse. That would have been the original form of the Anglo-Saxon church. Okay, so let's go back to the Saxon period then and think about when it was built in the first place. So if you bring us back to that 8th century context... Where are we? What's happening around here at the time? Well, the late 8th century is, of course, the reign of King Offa, who is well known to everyone because of the dike that he built. But he was one of the very few international kings of the English kingdom. He corresponded with Charlemagne, for example. We have at least evidence of two letters that he wrote about trade and about pilgrimage between Mercia and the kingdom of the Franks. And he describes the export of cloth from Mercia and in exchange black stones, which are probably quern stones, near demanding lava stones that probably came from Germany. He offered his daughter in marriage to King Offa, um, and then King Offa then wrote back and said, well, I'll only agree if you, your, your daughter marries one of my sons, which probably wasn't a good idea, <laughs> at which point diplomatic relations rapidly fell off. <laughs> It's a good try, but yeah, it didn't a good, work. A good try. But they were clearly, he described King Offa as a brother. And this, is, this is the point in which Mercia is at its greatest extent, the ascendancy of Mercia. So we are we sort of firmly in Mercia here. Was Bricksworth a key part of the kingdom of Mercia? Do we think that is a, a reason why we have this church here at the time? Well, that's a real mystery, actually, because there's no great saint associated with this place. There's very little documentary evidence about this church. Had no recorded burials of kings or famous people. It's a bog-standard church that's being put up in the late 8th century. So that's kind of what is so intriguing about this place, because it suggests what we might have lost in other Anglo-Saxon churches which have been destroyed or rebuilt in the medieval period. 
And in this time in the 8th century, so Christianity is completely firmly established at that point, isn't it? Yes. Curiously, Mercia was one of the last places to be converted to Christianity in the 7th century. King Penda famously held out. But then when it became Christian, became Christian very effectively and very enthusiastically. Repton, Litchfield most notably, and associated with the great missionary St. Chad. And Christianity was really, by the early 8th century, probably widespread across Mercia. Throughout June on Not Just the Tudors, we're honouring Queen Elizabeth II's Platinum Jubilee by focusing on queenship in the 16th and 17th centuries. I'm Professor Suzanne Lipscomb, and all this month with my guests, I'll be exploring the coronations of Tudor queens, Queen's Regnant and Queen's Consort, who wielded power in ways we haven't thought about. Really, when we begin to look at Queen Consorts, we notice that there's a lot of ways at the Renaissance court that women could hold informal power through their relationship with the king. Then there's the queen who ruled over the Spanish Netherlands and the female Swedish king. You heard that right. What did a 17th century person actually mean by saying, oh, she dresses like a man? If she would have worn male clothing, she wouldn't have been able to rule Sweden. So for a month of all things magisterial and monarchical, look no further than not just the Tudors from History Hit. did Hitler's sexuality shape his worldview? Why did the Black Death lead to the rise of the witch trials? And what are some of the sauciest scandals involving kings and queens at Hampton Court? I don't know about you, but this is the history I want to hear about. If you do too, then join me, Kate Lister, every Tuesday and Friday to find out the answers to all of these questions and more. Listen to Betwixt the Sheets, the history of sex scandal in society, wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by History Hit. So we do have, I mean, as you were saying right at the beginning, this is unusual because of its size. Mm. So what is the message she's trying to get across? Or, you know, whoever is commissioning this mm. church, would this have been something that Offer himself had commissioned or somebody else, do we know? Well, we have no evidence for it. But what's really striking is how similar this is to Carolingian churches. It's on an absolute Carolingian model. And there's only two other churches that are similar to this. One that was excavated in the 1960s in Sirencester and another one at Wing in Buckinghamshire, both of which are in Mercia. The end tower, as we came in, I don't know if you noticed, the bell tower with a little circular stair that goes up through it. These are very reminiscent of Carolingian bell towers, one famously shown on the plan of St Gaul, for example, and also reminiscent of Irish round towers. It's a very continental thing to do. You know, one thing is that this is a statement. 
this is part, we are part of Europe. We are part of the Carolingian zeitgeist by putting a building up like this. And of course, the reuse of all the Roman materials, because 800, Charlemagne is crowned on Christmas Day as the Holy Roman Emperor. This is the new Rome, and maybe offer in bringing all these Roman materials to construct this great building is saying here in Mercia also, we have a new Rome. Sorry, and just thinking again about that Roman material, which now we're standing inside and we're looking at these arches and there's just bricks absolutely everywhere and there's so many of them. And we are actually here in the area to excavate a Roman villa, actually, so we <laughs> might be coming from one of those. At this point in the 8th century, are there still lots of Roman remains then that are hanging around that people can, can access to that easily? Yes, I suspect so. There are literally ruins in fields. Uh, they haven't been robbed out. In fact, some parts of Britain are still upstanding remains of Roman remains even today. Roman villas and things in bits of the Cotswold you can find in woodland. Almost certainly in the 8th century, there would have been significant ruined buildings, just like ruined farm buildings today, that you would quarry for their building stone and their tiles. So let's go forward a bit in time. So you've said that the first stage of it is the 8th century and then there's a later 9th century phase um, after that. What do we know about that? And do we have, are those dates quite precise? Not really. (laughs) Of course, Mercia comes crashing down in 873 with the Danish, the Viking invasions and their arrival at Repton in Derbyshire. But before that, there's another second sort of golden age under King Wiglaf, um, who incidentally is buried at Repton. And during that period, there was also a sort of period of self-confidence. And one wonders whether the second phase of this church is associated with the reign of King Wiglaf. Yeah, because that's when we see in Repton as well, there's a lot of work going on there, isn't there, in St. Yes. Winston's, what becomes St. Winston's Church and the crypt. So, and that's not too far from here, it's about an hour away. So possibly yeah. part of a bigger sort of bigger, scheme. Bigger, bigger scheme. And of course, the crypt themselves, the crypt columns, it's been argued, are replicas of some pieces of Rome, which again is taking that Roman theme into Anglo-Saxon architecture. And is that something that we see in other Saxon kingdoms as well, or is that a very Mercian thing? Do we get that in Wessex? Do we get it anywhere else? Not really. Uh, You really have to wait until the conquest, where William the Conqueror and his barons are consciously reusing Roman materials of Roman sites, because the Normans also saw themselves as new Romans. But elsewhere, absolutely not. That Anglo-Saxon architecture takes a form of its own. And just these three churches at Wing, here at Brixworth, and at Sirencester, are self-consciously carried engine in their style. Um, so... If we were here in the 8th century or 9th century even, I mean, what would we have seen that we don't see now? I mean, there's things like, there's not a lot of sculpture, for example. Would we have had sculpture inside here as well? Yes, almost certainly. I mean, there's a little fragment of a churchyard cross that's all that remains from here. But almost certainly this would have had a stupid stupendous amount of sculpture. This period, about 800, is the great period of Mercian sculpture. A few miles down the road at Breeden on the Hill, for example, there is a magnificent scheme of sculpture, both decorative and figural sculpture. And perhaps the most spectacular discovery from this period comes from Litchfield, Litchfield Cathedral, where a painted angel was found in excavations there a few years ago, which is absolutely exquisite in its nature. And of course, 
in this period, offer tried to create a separate see here. So we know we have an archbishopric in York and we have an archbishopric in Canterbury, but Mercia wanted its own archbishopric and an archbishop was installed for a brief periods of time in Lichfield. Okay, so let's just wander down a little bit. Now, I, one thing that struck me actually when I arrived here, so this is called All Saints Church, and you just said earlier that we don't really have a particular association with one certain saint here. Does that mean that there's literally no association with any saints in any way or form? Well, not formally, but there's a curious tradition linking Brixworth with St Boniface. St Boniface, of course, was one of the great missionary bishops that went and converted the Franks on the eastern side of the Rhine to Christianity and Anglo-Saxon. And offer King Offer collected relics associated with St Boniface. We know that he gave a thumb nail to Westminster Abbey. But there's also the curious story of a throat bone associated with St Boniface. Of course, the throat bone is a really important relic because it's where sound comes out of. And there is a tradition that he presented it to Brixworth Church. And there is a shrine, a medieval shrine, that probably held it, that's still in the church. But also an interesting little hole which was uncovered in the 19th century that actually contained this throat bone relic. Oh, an actual an throat actual bone. bit of this throat bone. Oh. As far as I know, has never been looked at scientifically. But the idea was that this was actually hidden from the desecrators at the Reformation, hidden away and bricked up in the wall for safekeeping until it was discovered. Right, so that, it could possibly be quite a genuine story. I mean, it might not be the actual saint's bone, but it might date back to that original period. It could well date back to the Anglo-Saxon period. And there's an extra bit of confirmatory evidence in Brixworth because they have an annual fair dedicated to St Boniface. So it's not improbable that it really is his throat bone. (laughs) How exciting. Well, maybe we should try and see if we can investigate. (laughs) That's right. And if it was indeed given by offer, then that makes a lot of sense in terms of why this great Anglo-Saxon church was built here. Yeah, and it would lend it that extra bit of credibility as well and that association, which was, of course, very important for a church at the time. Yeah, and possibly the, uh, that great western window above the chamber might well have been a royal chamber in which a Mercian king could look down on proceedings down the nave. Fantastic, I love that. Right, so... Okay, so I mean, it's interesting that there's so little left of it here. And of course, we've worked in Repton, and we know that Repton was attacked in 873. The great army attacked the church, or the whole monastic complex there. And there's been a, a lot of evidence of that destruction of sculptures. We literally have the broken up pieces that are being used. I mean, but has there been anything like that here? I mean, as you said, there's only one small fragment. Do you know if there are any projects that have found similar things? Well, as far as I I know not a lot. The excavations were quite limited. The 25-year archaeological study was mostly on the fabric of the building rather than actually doing excavations. So there's very little that actually survives. But I mean, almost certainly the Vikings would have come here. As we drove here, we went to a little village called Ravensthorpe. Um, <laughs> how Viking can that get? You know, we are the right side of the A5, which was the division for the Danegeld. So this is where it gets quite interesting, isn't it? Because what happens then with the Great Army and certainly 873, Repton, and then Mercia with it, 
falls to the Vikings. And we have this period where a lot of this is, within what later becomes known as the Danelaw, is not actually the term used at the time, but as you say, there seems to be a division and there seems to be settlements, certainly on this sort of side. So we don't really know what happens here specifically, but to the rest of Mercia, what is the impact really that those Vikings have on Mercia? Well, politically, the greatest impact up until the Vikings, Mercia was the dominant kingdom of England. We mentioned the connections with Charlemagne. If the Vikings hadn't come along, and I hate counterfactual history, but if the Vikings hadn't come along, Mercia would have remained the dominant kingdom in the medieval period. And, you know, a place that's now completely forgotten about, like Tamworth, you know, would have, might have been the capital, you know, like Paris is in the middle of France. The same idea. So, you know, the political geography in Britain was changed forever with the arrival of the Vikings and then the growth of the Kingdom of Wessex that managed to stem the Viking advance. And the kings of Wessex were the people who Athelstan, Edward the Elder, to then create a kingdom, a unified kingdom in the night century. So really, I suppose it's churches like this where we're standing right now. That's the sort of the remainder really that we have of that Mercian prime time, as it were, the golden age of Mercia, is in places like this church in Brixworth. This this, this fleeting moment for literally 40 or 50 years, we have the sculpture, we have manuscripts from this period, we have wonderful decorative art, brooches, gold work. It must have been the most amazing period, but then it was all squashed. Yeah, sorry about that. to blame a lot for. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, I would absolutely recommend everyone come here to All Saints Church in Bricksworth to have a look. It's open. You can just have a look around and do spot those Roman bricks and in other churches as well. I mean, around the country, that is quite a common thing, isn't it? So people can have a look for that, can't they? Yes, we can spot the reuse of Roman material in Saxon churches. Yeah, absolutely. Brilliant. Mark, thank you so much for joining me and for taking me here. (laughs) Well, it's a pleasure and it's a joy to share what is i think the most exciting saxon building in the country thank you so much and thank you everyone for listening this has been an episode of gone medieval from history head please do subscribe if you haven't already and don't forget to come subscribe to our newsletter medieval mondays just look in the episode notes for how to do that i'm dr kat jarman and i will be back with you next tuesday Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium. Thank you for listening to this episode of Gone Medieval. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us out and you'll be doing me a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com forward slash subscribe. As a special gift, 
You can also get your first three months for just one pound a month when you use the code MEDIEVAL at checkout.